it sort of dawned on me that the oil and gas sector had a problem. You're not going to get your cost of capital back. Investors aren't going to fund you to go find new oil pools. You basically have an existential threat on your hands. Welcome to the Net Zero Life, a podcast for climate-focused individuals looking to learn the ideas, lessons, and philosophies from leaders working in climate. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and today on the podcast, we're exploring different perspectives on the energy sector. In 2022, U.S. President Joe Biden passed the most meaningful climate legislation in U.S. history through the Inflation Reduction Act, a law that is expected to cut U.S. emissions by 40% by 2030 from a 2005 baseline and reduce the U.S. government deficit by $300 billion over the next 10 years. At the same time, President Biden also asked energy companies to pump more oil, drill more wells, and overall increase fossil fuel production at the behest of the American public. Energy companies have built the existing infrastructure, provided critical resources, including meeting energy demand, and they want to protect what they built. At times, that has come at a cost to the climate, the speed of which we will achieve net zero emissions, and public trust. Nonetheless, it's important to identify good partners, and today's guest, Brian Trudell, is one of those partners. Brian is the CFO and co-founder of Avatar Innovations, a venture studio focused on energy innovation towards net zero. Reality has moved the goalpost for energy companies, and now they have to focus on a net zero future, both to save the planet and to make a profit. In service of this vision, Avatar incubates new energy companies that include net zero in their strategic business plan. Trained in the world of finance, Brian spent nearly 20 years at one of Canada's largest banks following and analyzing energy stocks. As he started to learn more about climate change, he leveraged a LinkedIn cold shot message into a partnership with his now co-founder Kevin to start an Avatar Innovations. Brian doesn't have the background of someone you or I would expect to be a partner in the fight to achieve a net zero future. But stopping climate change is an all-hands-on-deck fight. Brian and co. are leveraging their institutional knowledge in the energy space towards a new set of priorities. We discuss how and why he got to this point, as well as how his work is helping change the minds of other players in the energy space in the episode. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me, Nathan. A pleasure to be here. Yeah, super excited uh, for a number of reasons. One, um, you're a great guy. I've had a great time getting to know you through through our coffee chats and through some sleuthing on the internet. And two, in theme with the rest of season four, uh, you're providing a unique perspective that has not been talked about on the podcast so far in our first three seasons. And uh, I'm excited to have a nuanced discussion from a perspective that, again, hasn't been covered. So thanks for spending the time. Happy to uh, dig into it with you, Nathan. Thank you. Yeah. So we will get started with your background. We'll talk about your work with Avatar and your work within the energy, uh, the energy industry, specifically also from a Canadian perspective. So for people who can't hear it already in your voice or who don't already know, uh, you know, you, you are providing both a diverse perspective in terms of industry, but also from a global standpoint as well. Great. Yeah, I'm based in the U.S. Obviously, there is a lot of media coming from the U.S. as well. So, Avatar. Um, but before that, you spent 18 years at uh, one company, CIBC, which is um, a, a way that I know you're not a millennial in two ways. Because one, you know, no millennial would ever spend 18, 18 years at the same <laughs> company, uh, let alone a bank, right? So, um, right. maybe just summarizing your history, uh, history there, and any lessons or philosophies you learned from your time at CIBC. Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to get into that as well. So, um, you know, grew up in Ottawa, Ontario, 
and uh, was quickly interested in business and finance. And so I did a commerce degree uh, at Carleton University and then spent some time at Queen's University as well. And uh, really just was always intrigued by, uh, I'll call it corporate finance, but the, the stock market, you know, for to be quite generic about it. Always loved the intensity of it, the action of it. You know, it felt like it was really the center of, of commerce and the center of business. And so was was always drawn to that. And I did try to get to myself to New York at some point uh, to work on Wall Street, but I had to settle for the Canadian version. So I uh, moved to Toronto and uh, started at CIBC Capital Markets there and uh, right on the trading floor, basically, an institute equities and uh, was 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 right on the trading floor and you know it's not exactly like Hollywood depicts it but it, w- it was a lot of fun and there was a lot of intensity and and you get to work on really big deals and you get to work in a high intensity mar- uh, marketplace uh, lots of you know pretty serious uh, players people who manage billion dollar funds CEOs and executives at big companies so you get exposure to all of that uh, from from that role so really really enjoyed that and and through various you know iterations and different uh, changes amongst the personnel, started getting more and more involved in uh, energy trading and uh, from an equities perspective. And the, um, you know, that, that was, a, that was really good news for me from a young guy's perspective, trying to make it, make his way through the marketplace. Cause in Canada, there's three really big sectors. There's financials, there's mining, and then there's energy. Those are kind of our three big markets. And so for me at a relative, relatively young age, I was able to be the point person for the equities group for the oil and gas sector. And it was great. There was lots of volatility. Everyone cared about it. Uh, there was, you know, lots, it was a global commodity. You got to follow what was happening in the Middle East and, uh, you know, other jurisdictions. There's natural gas and oil, each with their own intricacies. And so it was, it was great. Lots of good markets, uh, cyclical markets. We had good ups and downs. And so, um, was there for the good days and the bad days, uh, of what, you know, typical commodity markets look like. And so 2014 is when things really started to uh, to change, and we started getting into this price war with with the uh, with the Saudis. They basically were seeing all of the shale development in the U.S., and they basically uh, were feeling like they were subsidizing the the price uh, there. And so they went, you know, they, they declared a price war, and you basically had the start of a really tough market for uh, for the sector. Um, and so we started getting into 2015 and 16 and 17, and that's when the divestment movement started picking up and the fossil fuel industry started, you know, becoming the, the villain or the bad guy. Um, and so, so may, maybe Nathan, do, do we want to talk about this jump right now or do you want to just, did you have some other questions to lead to this? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think so. For for listeners who don't already know, you have a background in energy, um, and energy specifically, we'll talk about oil and gas, so fossil fuel mm-hmm. forms of energy. And um, this the podcast is going to be a conversation from the lessons and ideas and philosophies on a net zero future from your perspective, right? And mm-hmm. and that will include talking covering the um, villain narrative. Although I think we'll you know we won't spend too much time on that. But but we are I think painting a picture of from a Canadian perspective, at least, which is very interesting, of the stools that the the energy uh, industry is standing on. Um, okay. So, and maybe we, I think, you know, if, if I can, you, you talked about the kind of price war, which is one stool that the energy stands on. Then we talked about the kind of the political and regulatory movement. But let's also sub- define some, um, some definitions. So equities uh, for people who aren't yeah. familiar with... Um, and then, uh, you know, we talked about energy. I think we'll use the term energy and oil and gas 
synonymously, but if you if you disagree, let me know. No, that's fine. And then and then maybe it, it just adding some color of the three main industries and and truly like how important they are to the to the average Canadian's well being and and stack ranking them if you can in terms of like finance, mining, and energy. Sure. Uh, so yeah, equities meaning stock market. Like really, uh, you know, when we buy or sell securities or stocks in a company. Uh, we, we call that an equity. So I, there's the bond market, there's a the currency market, there's commodities markets. And so I was in the equities market, which is trading the, the stock of the, the companies. Um, and, and then so in terms of the, the three big sectors, you know, with the banks and the real estate companies in Canada, that's probably 30 to 40 percent of our economy. Uh, I don't know the latest stat now. It's much less, but it used to be, you know, oil and gas was 25 to 30 percent. It's probably much lower now. And then uh, mining it was the other big sort of 30 percent. In terms of market capitalization, uh, a lot of global mining companies actually list in Canada just because we have a great jurisdiction and, and a lot of investors here are interested in that space. So we've got a lot of Canadian mining companies, but there's also a lot of global players that have listed in Canada. And so we're seen as a bit of a global uh, headquarters here. So, so just how it led to kind of where I am today, I guess. So was, was really firsthand witness, I guess, is the point to the ebbs and flows of the oil and gas uh, industry. And really the equities could be a, seen as a marker for your cost of capital or, if you will, your social license. You know, the, the, the amount of money that investors are willing to provide you with for the valuation that they're willing to give you to go and do your business. And so we saw the multiples contract severely in the uh, oil and gas space through 2016, 17, 18, and then in 19. And so I was sitting there firsthand witness to uh, investors walking away, American investors walking away, pension funds having to divest. And, you know, I wasn't a climate change advocate or expert uh, at the time. And I was really trying to get my head around, like, is this cyclical or structural? Like, well, what's happening globally? Because, you know, we've seen this before, commodities that, you know, typically when they're most hated and most out of favor, it's actually the best time to be an investor. You know, being con- contracyclical is, is very important. You can be, you can make a fair amount of money. So I was kind of trying to figure whether this would be the, the case here. And it just, we were never seeing the turn come. So I started doing a deeper dive, if you will, on, on climate change and, and all of the intricacies, all the different sides to the discussion. You know, it's, 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 easy to get caught up in our own circular loops and feedback loops. But I was in Toronto. I dealt with a lot of clients in Calgary who obviously had a specific point of view. But then I also got a chance to talk to a lot of people on the other side of the discussion. And I spent a good six months, which is not even close to enough time to to really get a sense for like what's happening out there. What's the science say? I I don't have a science background per se, but you know, what, what can I glean from it? What makes sense? And so in 2019, my own personal view was, Oh, like the world really has turned a corner on this. We've been talking about climate change for 30 years, but really nothing was bearing out in the data. You weren't seeing real change in narrative and, um, the, 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 the science or the innovation in that direction. We'd had a, a big, you know, green tech, uh, failing, uh, 10 years earlier where the economics just didn't make sense. So people sort of dismissed the space. And, and, but but now in 2019, I was sitting there trying to understand what was happening, and it became clear to me that whether or not um, – it basically became clear to me that the world wanted to decarbonize. So that was the bigger bet. The, the bet in my mind was not so much like oil and gas is over, all we need is wind and solar, and it's solved, uh, But because but, that didn't resonate with me. It didn't seem that simple. 
but I definitely was of the view that decarbonization was going to be a go-forward uh, movement. And so when you started seeing commentaries from the European side, from BlackRock, uh, you started seeing corporates, Microsoft and Shopify, all start to make these big, bold statements and commitments. It sort of dawned on me that the oil and gas sector had a problem. Uh, and not, not again, not in the cyclical way, but in the structural way. Like, you're not going to get your cost of capital back Investors aren't going to fund you to go find new oil pools. Uh, you basically have an existential threat on your hands. But the, the issue for me at the, that time was, well, we're trying to reinvent basically how we're going to power the planet. Uh, and we want to exclude the incumbent at the table. And it just didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, so that was one sort of piece of it. The other big piece was, we all still drove our cars. We all still fly to Europe for summer vacations. We all still buy new phones every two weeks or two years. You know, we're constantly consuming individuals. And so the narrative of just blaming Exxon or just blaming a big company uh, when we're the users of the product, it didn't really resonate with me. And I had an issue with that. And so I was trying to find ways to basically, uh, how do you bridge these two big concepts? So, So I started reading about Clean tech, a bit more broadly speaking, started getting really excited about it. Started learning about you know hydrogen, which has been around forever, but for me it was somewhat more new. Uh, you know, started reading about uh, carbon capture utilization. Started reading about long duration storage, nature based climate solutions, and it sort of dawned on me that the oil and gas sector is actually involved heavily in a lot of these things. And if we're going to try to change the way we power the globe they're probably going to need to be at the table. They, they understand scale. They understand logistics. They understand supply chains. They're used to dealing in complexity. And so wind and solar, of course, are going to be very much part of the equation, and there's lots of growth. But when you started looking at wind and solar utilization or penetration in the energy system, you know, even today, it still stands at like 3% of energy production. And I'm not talking just electricity. I'm talking about truly energy needs of the globe, which includes transportation and industry and fertilizers and agriculture, steel, cement. You know, we, I think sometimes the, the wind and solar, is, it gets very isolated to like electricity in like tier one cities and like, oh, we've got great penetration. The costs have come way down. All these things are true but they can be misleading in terms of feeling like we've solved the problem and therefore just keep oil in the ground because it's all good. So so, so maybe I'll, I'll pause there, Nathan, and, and turn it back to you. But that's kind of where my head was at, was how do we bridge uh, where we want to be with, with how we get there? Yeah, I'll add a few points. I'll start with the last one you made in terms of solving the problem again. And, and I think you called it out, so let me know if I'm not... Um... If I'm, if I'm putting words in your mouth or not characterizing it correctly, but the problem is still advancing human and a lot human society along with the rest of the you know biodiversity on this planet in a way that is decarbonized um and, and i think that's what everyone is saying in terms of like working for a net zero future at least that's the purpose of this podcast is right you know how are we getting to a net zero future how are we going to do it fast who are the people who should be at the table and so we'll kind of dive into those discussions that you shared but you called out a few things that i want to touch on um you know who are the influences that either specific people or organizations you called out a 
number of them, whether that was BlockRock. So for those who don't know, which is like, mm-hmm. I think like one of the largest asset managers in the entire world. Um, mm-hmm. Microsoft, obviously a huge tech, tech giant, Shopify, a Canadian tech giant. Um, mm-hmm. And then what were you reading? So, you know, we can take this however you want, but I think it's helpful for a listener to understand, you know, given your perspective, your experience, where did you go to, to learn about this problem and get educated and what specific resources would you recommend to someone else to go ahead and kind of build up that knowledge as well? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess a lot of it was through uh, Google, our friend Google uh, on the internet, but also just being in, uh, reaching out to people in the in the universe that you knew, right? Like reaching out to different contacts, different walks of life, different backgrounds, different contacts in your circles. Uh, so I didn't have a specific, uh, you know, pathway. I just talked to as many people as I could about it. I tried to get as many different points of views about it. I read what was happening in Europe. What are they doing in Japan? What's happening in the U.S.? You know, this is truly a global problem and narrative. And so how are we going to, uh, how are we going to really understand what's happening out there? So, so really a lot of it was done through just Google searches and reading and some books here and there. But, but, you know, Bill Gates had a great climate book, uh, 18 months ago that he put out. Uh, a lot of that becomes sort of generic to people who are in the space because they, they already are following it closely. Um, and then, and then cost of capital, I think is a very interesting concept uh, that we should double click on as well. Where in this example, so oil and gas companies lost their cost of capital, which means their equity share prices got depressed. They went quite low. And so for them to issue more capital, to issue more shares to go and buy something, they would have to issue too many shares to go and purchase something. Because, you know, if I needed to raise a billion dollars and I had a hundred dollar stock price, I have to issue X shares. If I need a billion dollars and I have a $10 stock price, I have to issue 10 times more shares. And so it doesn't become economic at a certain level if my share price is too depressed because my quote unquote cost of capital has now been eroded. And while we, so the way to think of that is what do investors want to invest in? And so oil and gas were going trading at say two or three times uh, certain metrics where clean tech companies that were working on battery technologies were trading at 40 or 50 times uh, a similar metric. And so what that means is those companies have a very strong currency, if you will. Their equity is at a very high valuation where they only have to issue a small amount of shares to go do big transactions. And the reason the marketplace is doing that is because it's wanting, it's saying, we trust in the management team. We trust in your vision. We want to support you in going and making the right moves out there and making the right investments in technology or acquisitions. And so we give you a high share price, and that gives you the basically the, the big stick to go and do, do some acquisitions. So that's what we call cost of capital. And, and these are helpful tools as we talk about the first principles of your work. And, and then I think, well, this is like an easy segue. Just one anecdote I want to add to this is um, in terms of like tying it full circle, you know, we mentioned like who should be in the room. And so the Frontier Fund came out and in 2022, a combination of um, led by Stripe, along with a number of other um, institutions, uh, I believe Microsoft was a part of that as well. And it was overall a $925 million commitment to carbon removal. Um, when a company's cost of capital goes up, it affects their amount of research and development. Uh, I think it was Chevron in, I think it was five years ago, invested $600 million into uh, 600 million, right? So two thirds of the frontier fund into a carbon capture plant in or carbon removal plant in Australia. And so as we think about this picture and as we think about this, um, this discussion, I think for the listeners, it's helpful to know it's that again, 
this all ties into the same problem that I, I believe everyone in the room wants to solve, which is a decarbonized future that still pushes humanity's ability to go do things, whether that's for, you know, the individual who's blessed like you and I to go purchase a new iPhone every two years, although I'm due because I think mine's like six years old at this time and cracked, or or, uh, or a developing country that needs, uh, you know, natural gas infrastructure to go raise their citizens out of poverty or you know, enable them to have right. uh, 24-7 access to power. Um, and not that I want to paint like that narrative overall, but... It's, it's everyone needs energy. The question is, where does that energy come from? So let's talk a little bit about the first principles of your work, unless you want to add on to anything I, I said there. Yeah, well, I think that's uh, fascinating. So the Frontier Fund that you mentioned is a perfect example of that really high, uh, you know, they've, they've been given a strong cost of capital and uh, Microsoft Alphabet was involved there, a couple of big financial institutions. And, and basically, the, this is for direct air capture, right? And so this is saying we want to create technology that's going to remove carbon out of the atmosphere. And uh, Avatar actually did uh, an accelerator last year, it ended, I guess, this year, for Elon Musk's $100 million Prize on carbon removal. And so we got to work with a bunch of startups that are uh, emerging in the space that are looking on it to work with new technologies. And we actually brought in the oil and gas industry into this with us to mentor the teams. And I think that was a good signal of their interest to support it. But, but, but my point is on the Frontier Fund, you know, when you're paying $1,000 a ton for carbon, uh, to be removed from the atmosphere, it's this crazy concept, right? There's a lot of people on, on our side who are like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why don't I just go get it from the flu stack, right? Like, why, why it's, I can do it for 50 bucks a ton at the flu stack. Why are you wasting your time going and trapping it from the atmosphere? And I think, I mean, we, I think the math makes sense. Like, of course, if that was your only goal, then you would only get it from the flu stack. But that's a great example where there's a group of individuals out there led by their Microsofts, et cetera, who are looking at new technologies in different ways and looking at the problem on a, on a 50-year timescale and saying, you know, the energy industry is going to do what it's doing. Carbon capture, that's, there's people working on that. We already have a lot of that technology. It's maybe not deployed as widely, but we need to really start working on draining that bathtub, right? I think most people are familiar with the bathtub analogy. And so they're throwing a very large amount of money at very small companies that have, you know, maybe removed two or 3,000 tons of carbon in a year. But, but they're throwing this insane amount of money because they want to be inspiring the, the next generation of technologies, much like solar would have required 20 years ago, right? We all look at solar today and say, oh, it's great. Like, look how much it's advanced. All the technologies make sense. It was subsidized for the longest time. Maybe people had an issue with that. But look where it got us. And, and Microsoft is showing that leadership. And now with the IRA, uh, there's also a $180 investment tax credit for, uh, for DAC as well, which is trying to keep that industry alive and, and going strong. So, so the concept is, you know, there's just so many people doing great work on so many different levels and initiatives. I think we need to stop sort of pointing fingers at the other side and saying that's the wrong way or that's not the way I would do it. You know, we, we all have the same end goal here now. I think, I think the industry, uh, you know, oil and gas, which we're now calling energy, I think I, I do have to agree four or five years ago, they weren't really on side with this new push, right? You weren't seeing net zero targets, but, but, but today that's changed and everyone's on the same page. And whether it was COVID that got us there 
or it was the negative oil prices that really shook the industry. Uh, the good news is, you know, moving forward here, I think we can we can we we can agree, or we we should certainly start to open up our minds to the concept that everyone's rolling in the same direction now for the first time ever. I mean, this is what's really exciting about the, where we are right now, and even COP 26 and COP 27, and the the narratives that are coming out of there. Um, sort of finding a pathway forward where the energy industry can actually be a major player on this decarbonization. I think we've turned the corner on this narrative and, and the, the polarization on both sides is sort of not welcome anymore. Uh, I think that the middle is where people really want to come together and, and do some work. Yeah. Um, there's so many interesting parts, I think, to jump on in terms of how we can get, to, where we can go and what to talk about. Um, you know, one one thing, you know, I'm going to think and talk at the same time, which is a very dangerous thing to do. But if any of these topics that I share are, are interesting and you want to, where you want to go, let mm-hmm. me know. Um, but just the concept of sides is interesting in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, like what who what are the sides? Are there two sides? Are there three sides? Are there zero sides? Um, and then, you know, tying that back to something you said earlier, which was, I think, for your own journey, it took a specific type of individual for, for you to think about it differently. Like I heard you call it names like BlackRock and, and um, regulators and uh, Microsoft. And so, um, you know, maybe we could talk about narrative building itself. Like what, what about what happened in the universe that helped get everyone on a side or from a specific mm-hmm. background to the journey of where we need to go, right? Again, like th- this understanding, like it's all hands on deck. Yeah. Well, I, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because where are we now versus where we were and, and what's changed? And we, we all kind of, we get stuck in our own loops, really. Uh, and, and so we, we need to make an effort to, to see what others are doing and talking about on the other side of the discussion. But the, um, you know, you've asked what, what's changed? Are we really rowing together now? I think part of the issue is when you start to look at the data and the amount of narrative, the amount of push that we've had from whether it's politicians or newspapers or media or Twitter, like, it's like, we just, we got wind, we got solar, it's more price competitive than natural gas. So just like turn it off. The issue is when you look at the data month by month by month, you you see that there's no impact, right? Fossil fuel demand, even coal, while the price of coal may have gone down 90% in the last decade, uh, barring what's happened just recently, but generally speaking, you know, the usage of coal is still at all time highs. Gas continues to go up. Oil continues to basically stick around. You know, you have to bear, obviously, what's happened with COVID. The point is, I, I, I feel like we're starting to get more in the middle now because people realize that it's just not that easy. It, you know, there is no pathway where you just leave it in the ground. Uh, that was a very loud drum that was being beat uh, through like 2010 to 2016, 17, you know, stop pipeline development. If we just stop building pipelines, everything bad in the world will go away. But the issue is the users are still needing the product. We still have an energy system that is being fed by fossil fuels. And so saying words on a page and talking to reporters and, and putting out these concepts and talking about these new technologies like that are happening in a lab there's no scale there. There's no impact. There's no distribution. We haven't built any systems in place to expand that. There's no capital for it. So I, I guess t- what I'm trying to get at is, it, I think at the beginning, let's call that, when I say beginning, there could be many beginnings, but say 10 years ago when the narrative really started picking up, it just felt like it was going to be easy. 
And now we're seeing that the world is just wired a certain way, and there's a major infrastructure build that's already in place that you can't just turn off. And the obviously energy crisis in Russia and what's happening in the Ukraine has brought this very much to light, right? Energy security, when energy is cheap and accessible and always works, what do we do? We completely take it for granted. And that's really what oil and gas has been sort of relinquished to the last decade. It's been too good. It's been too cheap. It's always worked. And so I think the society sort of figured, well, we don't actually really need this stuff. It's just bad. So we'll just turn it off. And it's because it worked really well. And now when it's not working well, we see the crisis. And so that crisis is highlighting to us that we need to be, uh, you know, the transition's going to take a lot longer than we anticipated. And it's going to need oil and gas. And, and I mean, I guess coal is an easy one for all of us to kind of harp on, but because it's harder to decarbonize that one. But but you, you're going to need the fossil fuels at the table because there is no other way. And so even BlackRock, you know, we, we talked about their good good champion and, and work two years ago talking about climate being at the center of, of investment. Even now, in the, this past summer, they've been turning down climate uh, positions at board meetings. Right. They, they've not been siding with the activists because they're becoming too aggressive. And BlackRock is, is recognizing that, you know, we, we do have to find the balance here and we do need to continue the supply side of these resources uh, or otherwise we're going to get these massive price spikes, which only hurt the economies. And so it's uh, I think that's part of what, what's been playing out here. Yeah, if, if I can add on to your narrative a little bit more. And then I think let's jump into the work of Avatar as well and yeah, kind of highlight yeah. the work um, that you do in terms of like accelerating the decarbonization and the transition as as in, in collaboration with oil and gas or energy companies. So, um, which is that, you know, it's not just, you know, I think expensive prices hurting economies can also be translated to expensive prices hurting individuals and consumers mm-hmm. of all backgrounds and all sorts, right? That the idea that mm-hmm. a net zero future is something I've talked about on the show um, a bit, but the, the, the narrative that I like to, to tell is, um, you know, combating climate change is an exercise in net present value because, the you know, when we solve climate change, we are going to impact the lives of future individuals and species and the planet as a whole of people who aren't yet alive, right, or, or organisms that aren't yet alive. And so at the same time, there are plenty of species and organisms and planet that ha- need help today. And that help comes through, like, we are all beneficiaries of an extended life, uh, average lifespan because of the, the innovations around uh, the Industrial Revolution, which was powered right. by originally coal. And now um, oil and gas. And I, I think, you know, I, you and I have some similarities, some similar opinions. We also have some, some differing in terms of like our, our descriptors. But again, like the goal is a like healthy planet for people and um, animals alike. And then I think just like kind of the moral obligation to you know, do what's right for, for this like delicate uh, ecosystem we live on. Let's jump into Avatar, which is so, um, and I'll give a little bit of context for the listener. So it's November 2020, which uh, for those who remember uh, is COVID. And so if you're listening, it's probably still COVID. It's probably, you know, COVID still might be in your midst, but in the future it might not be. Um, but the price of oil, I, I think, had just become, was like $3 a barrel in October. It was negative in September, October. And so it's kind of like the, you know, uh, worst time in the world to probably knocking on uh, CEO of an energy company's door to say, hey, it's time to start focusing on the decarbonization, but maybe not. You let me know. So you yeah, and yeah. your co-founder Kevin decided to start Avatar. How did you and Kevin meet? Why did you decide to found it? And like, what were your hopes and dreams yeah. back then? Yeah, yeah, you bet, you bet. Um, 
So, yeah, so oil went negative. I think it was actually March or April of that year, but they were really in the gutter for a, a prolonged period. So, so definitely really tough time uh, when we launched Avatar in November. But, but rewinding a little bit and tying it back to my experience when I was at CIBC, um, I started getting really excited about decarbonization and, and clean tech and, and learning about all these new uh, technologies and new ways to power the world, if you will, in a, in a low-carbon way. But then, I, as I said, I realized that the energy industry, which is where my contacts were and where my network was, actually could be a big player in it. But, but at the time, when I'd go to Calgary, they, people weren't super stoked about talking about uh, clean tech uh, in 2019. But, but it was what it was, and that's where my interest was, was lying. And um, so I wanted to do something within, uh, within the CIBC in this direction, right, working with the incumbents. Everyone basically had turned their back on the sector. And I was starting to look forward and thinking, well, we're still going to need the products, and these guys are really well positioned to be working on innovation in energy. Uh, let's, let's be there to help them, and let's advise them, and let's bank them. And uh, there was an appetite at the time. So I was, I was doing a lot of work externally and, and, and meeting with people in the ecosystem, and uh, I, I ran across what Kevin had started, and he had actually started Avatar inside of his company. He ran a drilling company. He was CEO of a drilling company, and uh, his experience was uh, similar to mine, but from a different perspective. He was running a business. Rig count goes to zero. Basically, is faced with having to lay off his staff, and says, "Well, I got a real, a really, I got a strong group of people that work with me. We're smart on subsurface. We're engineers. We're professionals." Why don't we start doing some work on innovation in the space? Why don't we start looking at geothermal? Why don't we, why don't we, why don't I? So he creates basically an internal training program for his staff and he calls it Avatar, which is really sort of the rebirth. And he's got a great story on why he's called it. It's not after James Cameron's movie. Um, and so it's the, the Bhagavad Vita story from 3000 years ago. But basically, you know, amongst the, the pain, uh, an avatar is released uh, into, into the, to make the future bright again. And so he creates this program, partners with the University of Calgary, brings his customers to the table and says, let's work on innovation development together. And that, so I read about that in the newspaper. Uh, uh, he was in the Globe and Mail and he was talking about avatar and working with industry there was a, a very small group that he worked with uh, from uh, participants from Enbridge and TransCanada in the summer of COVID, uh, where they did it all from their bedrooms, basically. And they got together, they got together on teams, they worked on innovation. And uh, I thought that was a great way to engage the industry on innovation. At the time, they were doing more stuff that's really tied to sort of optimization of oil and gas. But when I approached Kevin, I just reached out to him on LinkedIn, and, and he was kind enough to respond. Uh, so I just cold called him, and, and I talked to him about where my head was at, what my thoughts were, and we got a chance to know each other. And so in uh, September, I flew down to meet him uh, in Calgary, and we just hit it off right away. We shared the same passion. Uh, he was very much on board with the decarbonization concept. Uh, we were starting to see the shift in the, the industry's tone. Uh, Enbridge TransCanada wanted to be involved in this, but it, it didn't work inside of his company that he was at. Uh, we had Suncor approaches at the time. Uh, all, you know, a few of these little things serendipitously all happened at once. And so basically, I, we put together a business plan, Kevin and I, over two months. And uh, with, with some support from those three in particular, we launched Avatar Innovations. And so, so what we fashioned it at, as at the time was a corporate innovation partner. So one of the challenges for the oil and gas industry, if you, if you can appreciate why, 
they haven't done a ton of innovation the last 20 or 30 years, right? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You go find the resource, you drill it. There's been optimizations and all of this type of efficiency gains, but you haven't really had to innovate. Well, now the sector is faced with an existential threat, right? The climate change narrative is not going away. It's, in fact, it's, it's really officially over. Oil prices uh, over in terms of like, why are we we're going to debate this still? Like, I don't think there's much room for that anymore. Um, but then oil prices go negative. Uh, retention at these companies is becoming harder and harder. They've had lots of layoffs themselves. And so when we approach them with an idea of being a corporate innovation partner to them, working with their employees and their young professionals on energy transition and innovation and leadership development, you know, it was somewhat, I don't want to call it an easy sell, but, but we put together a compelling proposition for the time. Uh, something that probably wouldn't have got off the ground five, six years ago, quite honestly, because no one was looking for something quite like this. But the, the view was the industry and, and Calgary in particular, it's a great, great city, great culture there. Everybody knows everybody. It was a good place to start something that never existed, you know, to start a new business model that the city had never seen. And because it was during COVID, everybody was stuck at home. I think we had a bit easier of a buy-in. And so we created a, a three-pronged or three-staged uh, approach. And it's essentially now we've uncovered uh, in hindsight, but it's essentially a venture studio model uh, that we've put a bit of our own spin on. And so the first phase is called Avatar Ignite. And that's when we bring together 250 professionals in the industry from multiple different backgrounds, multiple different companies, largely oil and gas backed, but we also have utilities in there. We had some fertilizer or agriculture companies in there um, and participants. And we ended up having uh, 50 different companies represented this year in our cohort. And so we take the 250 participants, we put them on 50 teams. Uh, we do uh, innovation uh, profiling. We, you know, we want to make sure we put together diverse teams, but not just for gender uh, minority, uh, but also for background, how your mind thinks. Are you an originator? Are you a, a dreamer? Are you a poet? Are you a warrior? You know, we all have different ways that we work as uh, individuals. And so when you're putting together teams, you want to make sure you have a bit of every different type on your team. So we do a, a very thorough analysis and put together these 50 teams. And basically, for the first three months, we we uh, we really focus on ideation, and we, it's more of an inspiration-based curriculum. We bring in a lot of high-profile speakers. Kevin's got a great network. Uh, you can go on our website and see a bunch of the people we've had in the past. Um, so it's it's really about getting people excited about energy transition. And, and again, this was super important two years ago when when the the space was really on its knees. Things have come back. We've got better oil prices. The mood is better. But people are aware now that the game has still changed, right? This is $100 oil doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's, it's over and we don't have to worry about the, the global threat here. I mean, this is, this is not changing. And, and so what we try to do in that first three months is really get people excited, inspire them. And we, the, the concept is you guys work in the energy industry. You understand supply chain. You understand the inner workings of, of, uh, energy. And so we're going to put you together on teams and we're going to provide you with this third space to innovate and come up with a new idea, meet people you never would have naturally run into. And so we're sort of trying to create, you know, there's this a really good uh, YouTube podcast about the coffee houses in the 1600s in London, right? And, and coffee houses ended up being these great places for innovation because it brought together people from different backgrounds and different mindsets and different ideas. 
and and a lot of, there's a lot of literature on sometimes the best ideas are when two people with half of an idea come together and they basically create this synergy that didn't wouldn't have existed otherwise and so that's really what we're trying to act as is this place where people can come together and and we've kept it on the outside of the big companies because you know, we have this this joke we call it the no committees, right? If you work at a big, big company of 20, 30,000 employees, you try to get something innovative done at these big safety critical type companies, like you're not going to get very far. And so we've been able to, to uh, introduce Avatar as a place for this third party outsourced development on innovation. Let the risky stuff, let the stuff that you would never pursue as a big company, let this happen outside of your doors with your involvement, with your support, your mentoring. And let's see what we can do with it. And, and so that, that's what the first phase is. And we have them present at the end of three months to uh, Shark Tank. Uh, so we try to gamify the process. We make it exciting. They all pitch uh, a business solution. And it's still just a PowerPoint deck. It may be something they found in the research world. But it's, it's something that's supposed to be creative, something that doesn't exist. And we've had the Shark Tank basically pick the top 10 or top 12. Uh, we have them pick the winners. And they also then would sponsor one of these teams. And the teams that get sponsored moved into, move into our accelerator, which is the second phase, which lasts about four to five months. And this is now the, you know, let's take that idea and let's develop it. Let's go do customer discovery. Let's spend a little bit of money on some lab tests, some development, hire some modeling people, maybe start building an app. So, you know, we have one team in particular that's working on an app. So it's now going from ideation to development of the idea. And for four or five months, we, we work with a professor from the university, uh, York University in Toronto, and he takes us through basically how do you build a business. And at the end of that four-month journey, we then have them pitch to a, a group of investors, mostly venture capitalists, and we basically look to see which of those 10 or 12 that we can commercialize and, and basically incorporate. And so we're trying to essentially build new business opportunities, create new businesses from people that are inside the industry looking to, to innovate and, just, uh, and, and, and decarbonize it. Maybe I'll pause there. Yeah, no, it's great. Um... So one of the things that I'd love to hear is kind of your lessons learned from this process. So now you see, you know, you get your, your sample size of whether it's 250, 1,000, 10 of individuals trying to innovate at scale quickly, um, but you're trying to move a massive, massive ship or like the entire industrial economy that supports the global uh, well-being of all the individuals like quickly. So, you, you know, you get to see this um, probably faster than most individuals. And so I'm curious if there's any lessons learned that you have from it. And I'll caveat specifically, um, but if you have any a general, feel free to go ahead. But one of the things I'm curious about is, is the timeline in terms of to, to reaching innovation and to reaching net zero. And specifically, if I go back to an earlier episode of season four, I interviewed Dr. Jennifer Holmgren, who's the CEO of Lanzatech, uh, or Lanzatech, which is a, you know, it, it, she has, she's this incredibly inspiring net zero leader who also has a background in the oil and gas industry, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, mm -hmm. even, even her own personal narrative has shifted, which is amazing. And again, she's like super inspiring. Um, and she talks about, uh, you know, the difference between the activists and the CEO of an energy company is, is not the goal, but it's the timeline in terms of how we get to that goal, right? And so... Um, <laughs> Anyways, I don't know sure. if that sparked anything specifically, yeah. but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, again, it's really easy to say things, really hard to do things. And the, the big difference with energy is it's in the physical world. 
So we can, and we've seen all the Silicon Valley success and people create an app and tomorrow I can sell my app to a billion people. And oh, by the way, I, I developed it in my boardroom, you know, or in my bedroom for the last month and I didn't have to talk to anybody. I just coded my little heart out. And so the issue is in software, it's, it's very easy. It's not easy, but, you know, you can get it to public, to the market quickly and at very low cost. The challenge and difference with energy is it's a real, it's a real thing. You have to generate, you have to regenerate it continuously. And it, it involves a lot of capex. It involves a lot of regulatory, a lot of safety critical stuff. I mean, this is, you know, you, you have to be, safety is just paramount in the energy industry. So when you try to innovate in something that has all these rules around it, uh, it's, it's hard. It takes time. And uh, so, so what are we trying to do here? We're trying to create a space where people can come up with new ideas and new innovation, maybe take something that existed in a different sector or take something that is TRL eight or nine in a lab, but doesn't know how to get to market, doesn't have the right network, doesn't have the right team. What Avatar is doing is trying to bridge essentially the startup and the corporate. And the corporate's really the customer, right? They're really the buyer. And any startup that you've maybe encountered in the past who tries to sell to one of these big companies, they don't even know where to start, right? They, they don't know the, the structure. They don't know the org chart. They don't know the players. They don't know how to speak the same language. So what we're saying is we want to try to innovate with the people who understand the buyer, who work at the buyer. And that our hope, and we have one really strong example from last year, but basically they were able, the team worked inside of this company and they were able to get an LOI signed with them in three weeks. So a letter of intent. You know, if you were a startup who started out of your garage and you worked your way up to a widget and you tried to sell it to one of these big three or four companies, it could take years, like literally, right? So you want to talk about timelines, like it could take years to even get into the room. So our approach is we're trying to create this platform that's set up to win. And so what the setup to win means, it means we've looked at all the challenges of innovation and timelines and getting to market and doing it the right way and generating a product that somebody wants to buy that has impact. And so we're, we're starting at the very beginning with the right people who are able to get to the right place quickly. So, so I think maybe that answers one part of your question in terms of how we think we're going to do this faster is because we're working with the customer in real time on the process. And they're likely going to be an investor in the new business. They're going to know the people who are running the new business. They help put their employees into the new business. You know, so there's a lot of pieces here that come together that, that we're helping, that we're hoping will speed up this timeline that you speak of. And I think it's also something I think I covered on the podcast as well, but there is this kind of, there's this new, um, in line with the outsourcing of everything, there's also an outsourcing of R&D. And so you see, um, you know, there's, uh, I come from the aviation world, which has a similar constraint on innovation because of safety. Ironically, I think it was 2018 was the safest year to fly. And then 2019, we have the, you know, Boeing 737 MAX debacle. Um, and so the, um, but you have outsourcing of R&D as instead of, instead of Facebook trying to innovate from their own engineers, they have venture arms. And the same thing I think is true in this sense. And it's an ability to, again, this all hands on deck uh, of moving the world at a faster pace. Um, 
Um, in, in the interest of time, I think I'd love to hear a little about what, what you're excited about from the venture perspective uh, in terms of the technologies. You know, you've talked, you mentioned geothermal, hydrogen, um, either from avatars or your own. Like, what are you excited about in the future? What do you what do you think will be successful if you had to place like big bets uh, on timelines? Like, do you think in five year timelines, ten year timelines, fifty year timelines? <laughs> These are tough predictions, no doubt. Um, I, I think I'm excited about uh, several different aspects here. I'm excited that we're, we're all rowing in the same direction here, that there are so many different pieces to decarbonize that, you know, everyone needs to be active in their own way. And, and nobody can be an expert in all of it. You know, you look at any of these pie charts of where emissions come from, and there's 50 different pieces to it, right? It's very complicated. What I'm excited about in terms of... Uh, that maybe the teams that we're working with and the types of innovation that we're working on, you know, we, we've uh, definitely got a lot of focus on methane, uh, methane leaks, methane detection, methane monitoring. The industry, if it wants to continue to have a license to ship natural gas and for LNG to be, you know, one of these major bridge fuels for the next several decades, the, the transportation industry is going to have to really fix this methane problem, the, the leaks it's touted a lot on the, you know, from the environmental side that, yeah, natural gas may be lower carbon intensity than coal, but you've got a lot of leaks that are, you know, I think the number is five or 6% of GH, global GHGs come from just unintentional leaks in the system. And so we've got three teams in particular right now working on uh, monitoring detection uh, in real time, right? There's, there's lots of different companies out there that are doing some of this work. And I think that's uh, super important and super interesting because if we can put a button on that, you know, which is just so unfortunate, literally, it's just all the leaking is just uh, a problem. And there's also actually intentional uh, venting that gets done as part of maintenance for the pipelines. And so we have one team that's working on a technology where they would actually capture uh, an intentional vent. And so, again, just working in the direction of, of really improving the system, the infrastructure. I mean, we have billions and billions of dollars of infrastructure already in place to just get rid of it all would, would be crazy. So let's continue to work on improving it. Uh, we also have uh, you know, the subsurface. If we can't put all of this carbon in the atmosphere, well, we got to put it somewhere else, right? And so subsurface guess who's an expert in that? Also the oil and gas industry. So now instead of taking things out of the subsurface, we're going to be putting them back in. So we have some teams working on some interesting uh, carbon mineralization technologies in the subsurface, basically creating a mineralizing carbon in real time so you don't have to transport it. Uh, there's lots of basins in Alberta in particular where you, where you can do that. Uh, there's not the regulatory side in place yet for that, but there's also not the technology. So it, it's sort of hand in hand. Um, we also have uh, teams working on uh, using the subsurface for renewable natural gas, uh, injecting certain, uh, uh, you know, uh, molecules, uh, waste products underground, injecting some, some different chemicals under there to create uh, RNG, which could then be used for in the existing fuel system. Right, Biofuels in general, to me, are super exciting and super interesting. When we look at uh, basically all the transportation network out there, we have a billion, 1.2 billion cars on the road. They all run on gasoline or diesel. We can't. Just, that's not going away. <laughs> like that's going to take decades to, uh, to 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 turn over. And so I think biofuels is a very exciting uh, space. You've got obviously the aviation industry with SAF, sustainable aviation fuels. There's a lot of work being done there. Well, we need a fuel source, right? And hydrogen gets touted often as sort of that answer. 
the problem is hydrogen is very hard to make. Uh, you know, green hydrogen using wind and solar to make it is is a great idea in principle. But right now we're using all of our wind and solar for electricity generation, and we've you know we can only do so much so, so quickly. So using waste products uh, in different ways and creative ways. So so those are a few of the ideas we've got. Uh, one one team working on using bitumen for carbon fiber materials and potentially as a replacement for steel. So you can use you know within bitumen there's a lot of uh, a lot of optionality that's non-combustible. Uh, so that's also something that we're working on. Um, there's just so much in the space to do outside of carbon capture technology. So one of our teams is looking at gallium oxide as a third generation carbon capture catalyst. Uh, you know, so again, it's something totally exciting front of the front of the curve. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done out there. I'll add a, just a few points if that's all right. Um, you know, first and foremost, the exciting part is that you are facilitating these technologies that are critical to a transition uh, to a net zero future. And you're having that discussion um, with the leaders from the oil and gas industry, again, who have access to resources that are required for this transition. Um, so that's super exciting. Just a few points for the listener who, um, you know, maybe is not as familiar with these terms, LNG, liquid natural gas, bridge fuel, the idea of natural gas being a bridge fuel because it's lower carbon intensity than say a coal um, and it's also, you know, we have the infrastructure in place and we can so provide this energy source to either developed economies or developing economies. The reason methane people, um, so again, for the listener who, who may not know, the reason methane is, is so important to capture itself is because, so methane is CH4. If you think about the IPCC's global warming potential, CH4 or methane is between 24 times and 84 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, right? So again, just sharing that, um, when you say subsurface experts subsurface i think you were talking to carbon capture as well that you know yep. taking things out and putting it in so just for sure. so for people who are following there um rng renewable natural gas um to the cars point I, I wanted to add there's a great so stanford energy lectures is this amazing resource on youtube um as uh, you know a non-traditional as we think about non-traditional ways to learn about the future youtube is incredible um and stanford brings these world-class truly world-class experts to talk to their professors and their students and then uh, puts it on on the internet for free you know you have an internet connection and you can go access this um and so the ceo of cummins which is I don't know if I pronounced that right, um, it, which is a diesel engine manufacturer, talks about the need for a transition to a net zero future and what that looks like. And the idea that diesel engines, uh, you know, we've kind of have like an electric future for the passenger car, but what about like heavy duty and, and kind of like lightweight light trucks, uh, your class eight trucks, your mining vehicles, your your bulldozers. And he has, a, it's, it's a great narrative around his perspective of what that future looks like. So if anybody wants to think more, like wants to dive into that a little bit deeper from, from a CEO's perspective, I would say go check out the CEO of Cummins, C-U-M-M-I-N-S, uh, on YouTube. Um, bitumen, I don't know if I pronounced that word right or if that gets Stanford, but uh, if that's going to get, not Stanford, if that's going to get uh, bleeped out here. But um, I'm actually not familiar with that. So if you just want to just give the listener a little bit more context, um, what it is. Yeah, the bitumen is basically the, the oil sands, right? It's just a different name for it. I'm not sure exactly what the technical, it's basically just the oil sands. So instead of, you know, the industry, obviously, that's a big part of the uh the, the black eye that the industry has received is, is the uh, the high emissions intensity of, of bitumen and oil sands production because they use a lot of natural gas to, uh, to 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 produce it, and so for Alberta, it's a major resource. 
And so if they want to continue to have, you know, a revenue opportunity with that resource, and if combustion is going to be an issue for it down the road, you know, what are other ways that we can do? Because it is a high carbon molecule. And if you look at carbon fiber as an example, you know, or whether it's carbon fiber used as a steel replacement, you know, what else can we do with that resource? And so that, that's what I was getting at with the bitumen. Now it's, it's, it's in the ground. It's gooey. It's, uh, it's dirty, but it can, it can also have a lot of good without being combusted. And so you have a, a, a low GHG product to come out of it. Yeah, fantastic, right? And then for those who aren't aware, steel itself is a major uh, producer of emissions, right? Because you need this really, really high heat and there's only a certain number of ways to get it. Correct. I have just a few more questions. Um, so, oh man, I do have, I have quite a number here, uh, but I, I will uh, Okay, I, I I'll will go try quick. To, I'll, I'll answer yeah. quickly. No, no rush. Please take as much time as you need. Um, but just first and foremost, if you weren't doing what you do now, um, working at Avatar, helping accelerate the transition, what would you be doing with your time? Well, probably still be in the... Is this supposed to be a fun answer or a real... It's whatever you want. Yeah. It's I mean, want. I, I would still want to be in the stock market, I guess. You know, I, I still like following different stories, seeing what the world's doing, deals that are being done, uh, helping companies raise capital. You know, I, I still would be uh, very much on that side. But I love what we're doing at Avatar because I have an ability to be part of the creation of new companies. Uh, in my previous life, I was always dealing with post-IPOs, post-public you know, companies. And it's very exciting and rewarding to be on the ground floor trying to actually build something and seeing how darn hard it is uh, to, to do it as well. And then uh, as we grow here as a company, we, we do want to get on the investment side ourselves. We are in the process of, of trying to raise some capital to invest in our team. So we do want to become uh, a venture fund ourselves to invest organically in the teams that we've created and the companies that we've created. Uh, but yeah, very much still interested on the investment side. And actually brought back a question that um, I was thinking earlier. When you think of time timeline for mm -hmm. either return on capital from a finance perspective or return on impact uh, from like an emission standpoint, and you think about these companies, what going back to that time horizon, how do you think about it from like a, maybe, you know, you expect a return on capital and emissions in one year to 50 or 100? That's or so tough. I mean, that's a really tough question, Nathan. I, I, don't, I don't really have an answer to that. I, I think we just keep moving in the, the direction that we're inspired by. We look for data. We look for progress. We Every day we want to be doing something that hasn't been done yet. Uh, I, I don't have a specific timeline just yet. Uh, you know, these things do take a fair amount of time. I guess, you know, five to seven years, if I could throw out, like, you know, I'd love to see some of our companies teams that we've been working with in five to seven years, potentially be public, you know, raising their hundred million dollar rounds and, and being available for the general public to invest in. Uh, I, I guess I've, I'm thinking of it more from a financial point of view. And then on the emission side, you know, the, the more, the better, right? We, we want to have as big of an impact as possible, but in isolation and just the, you know, as individuals, it's so hard to, you know, say I helped reduce a million tons like uh, uh, even lands attack, right? Would, would, it's just a, it's a big number and they've got a lot of people working there to get to that number. So I just, I love being part of creating as many opportunities out there in the ecosystem. Like I said, we go from 50 teams to kind of 10 or 12. And then by the end of the year, we hope to incorporate five or six. And, you know, if we can be putting out five or six companies per year, every year, you know, that that's going to add up in time. And so I, I look forward to seeing where we are in, in 10 years from now. 
Yeah, same here. And that'd be a great place to end the podcast, but I'm going to keep going anyways. Okay. Um, um, Is there any sustainability or net zero influencers on social media, which I'll include LinkedIn, that you follow or that you glean information that you would recommend to a listener or to a CEO? Um, uh, So ARC uh, Financial, Peter Trezakian and Jackie Forrest do a biweekly podcast. It is definitely Alberta-focused, but they do a ton of global perspectives, and they do a very balanced job of, uh, of, of understanding both sides of the discussion and talking about the complexity of things, and they dig into the deep details. So that would be my absolute number one uh, recommendation there. Forrest, okay. Forrest, easier probably to spell than Trizakian, but um, I'll look it up and we'll put it in the show notes here. Um, you kind of beat me to the next punch, but, um, you know, I typically ask like if there's a book or podcast or other form of learning that's shaped your thinking around your perspective on a net zero future. Uh, and if it's global perspectives, it's totally fair. It's a bit, I think you just need everything, right? Uh, like I'm reading a lot of books on innovation right now. I've got Matt Ridley's book, you know, how innovation works. Uh, I mentioned, uh, the, the book from Bill Gates, um, how to avoid a climate disaster, different news articles. I mean, every, every morning I get something from Bloomberg and uh, uh, various other news pieces. There's just so much happening in the world now. It's hard to kind of miss it if you, if you want to just, you just have to be open to it. One, one book that I liked, I forget the author, but it was uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And uh, it was basically about running a startup and running a business. And so we, we, we give that book to some of the people that we work with uh, here at Avatar, because if they're going to take this entrepreneurial journey and, and go try to run a business, they need to recognize that it's hard uh, and there's a lot of sacrifice, uh, but, but it's worth it, right? Because you really can have uh, an impact. Uh, it's always tough when you work at a, a really big company and you're just one wheel on the cog of 10,000 employees. Uh, it's always exciting when you can be the master of your own destiny, even though it comes with a lot of pain. It, there's, there's a lot of value. So, so reading books on entrepreneurship and leadership development, innovation, training, it, it's, it's, it's an exciting time. Yeah. Amazing. I got those down. We'll put those in the show notes. Um, okay. Wow. Brian, thank you so, so much. Um, one more question for you, which is if people want to follow your work or they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I think our LinkedIn profile or uh, page is the best. We do continuously update on there. We, we post what we're up to. We talk about the teams we're working with. Uh, so LinkedIn for us is definitely our, uh, our best thing. We're, we're still a new company ourselves. We've, we've been around just under two years. So we don't have uh, anything sort of official yet, but LinkedIn would be our best way. Okay, fantastic. Um, and is that for Avatar and then for you personally? Can Is it all right if people... Either. Yeah, of course. Yeah, either, either work. Absolutely. Great. All right, Brian. Thanks for coming on the show. Super appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Brian for joining us today. You can get in touch with him via LinkedIn, Brian Trudell, B-R-Y-A-N-T-R-U-D-E-L. We'll put it in the show notes. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is no way reflective of my employer and it's also not investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climon. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to do us a huge favor, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our socials at the Net Zero Life. 
Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. <laughs>